in a nutshell, these lectures are encapsulated by the lines that you just sung. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who is worthy to be praised, whose particular name is Yahweh, praised by patterning our lives after this God's character. I want to begin today with the story. Patricia, a retired nursing home aide, encountered medical issues and decided it's best to move closer to her family. To do so, she had to pay double rent for one month and rent a small moving truck. This was more than she could afford on a small monthly disability income. Since her other family members were also struggling financially, she borrowed cash from payday lenders to help her cover moving-related expenses. Patricia took out three loans, two for $200 and another for $150. Even with my limited mathematical prowess, the total interest for these loans with a total principal of $550 amounted to $123, which doesn't seem like much. But it resulted in her having to pay back $673 to fully pay off the loans. But with her limited disability check, she couldn't afford to pay more than the interest. For nearly two years, she paid finance charges each month. She wound up paying over $2,700 in interest only and not one penny toward the principal balance of $550. Jennifer Trogdon is a mother of five, four with special needs. Her husband works at a fast food restaurant making a little more than minimum wage. She's on disability. The 39-year-old woman from Springfield, Missouri, says her family's trapped, struggling to break free from payday and car title loans. She says it started off with a vehicle repair. You don't qualify for a loan at the bank, so you take out this payday loan. They explain it to you, and you think that it's not really going to be a problem paying back, but you don't really comprehend it fully. And not having any other option, what else are you supposed to do? These sorts of stories are repeated over and over again right around the corner from here. I pass five or six payday loan companies driving to my seminary office advertising easy cash or fast cash they're everywhere, but mostly they're in areas with relatively high rates of poverty, and they intentionally target low-income borrowers. On average, a payday loan customer takes out nine loans per year from these companies, which make most of their income from churning out loan after loan and adding the interest to their borrowers' existing loan accounts, trapping them in a cycle of debt. Households with access only to these short-term loans are often forced into being late paying other bills, making their credit history even worse. And they tend to delay needed medical services and even purchase of prescription drugs. With worsening health, it becomes more difficult to go to work and to keep a job. And they sink deeper and deeper into the cycle of debt, 
poverty, and bad health. There clearly are many other contributing causes to poverty in most of these communities, but payday lending practices are part of a complex web of injustice. One form of the forces of chaos engulfing such communities, making for a messy situation where shalom is absent. I want to say more about this issue later, but first I want to remind you of what we saw in our lecture on Wednesday about holiness, justice, and God's mission. Then I want to pick up where we left off in that lecture and go a little deeper into the biblical connection between God's saving justice and God's holiness and the way that we share in God's holiness when we become weapons of his saving justice in a local church. So, a brief summary of Wednesday's lecture. On Wednesday, we saw that the Bible's primary storyline is about God's mission to use human beings to bring creation to its intended destiny of flourishing with abundant life for all, what the Bible calls shalom. After the mess of Genesis 1 to 11, we saw that God selected Abraham, Sarah, and their future family as his primary means of carrying out this mission. And then we saw that God teaches them his way, the way of the Lord, right in the midst of another messy situation where Shalom was absent, the situation at Sodom and Gomorrah. As God's refusal to engage in Abraham's bartering contest revealed to us, the way of the Lord in such situations is to lead with as much compassion and mercy as is possible. But ultimately, his way is to act to restore justice by liberating Sodom's victims from their helpless situation and restoring the conditions that allowed them to flourish with the abundant life of shalom that God desired for them and for his creation as a whole. Justice and peace or shalom are inseparable in Scripture. Ultimate peace or shalom for creatures and creation is the goal of God's mission, and justice is its presupposition. We concluded on Wednesday that by noting that if Abraham and his family were going to be the set-apart people of God that he will use to bring his blessing and shalom to the other peoples of the world and finally bring creation to its intended destiny, it would require their obedience to the way of the Lord. That is, it would require them to reflect God's character or pattern of activity that exhibits his desire to engender restorative justice in order to reinstate shalom in a chaotic and disordered world. It would require them, in a word, to be holy. Today I want to pick up here and go deeper into this biblical connection between God's saving restorative justice and God's holiness. A connection that the prophet Isaiah sees clearly. In Isaiah 5, 16, he says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted by justice, and the holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. That is, by justice 
in its saving mode. Here, Isaiah is claiming two things simultaneously regarding the relationship between justice and holiness. First, that God's justice in its saving mode of bringing deliverance and establishing or restoring shalom is a concrete display of holiness, of who he actually is. And second, that when God works his saving justice, using his chosen people as an instrument, their own lives display divine holiness in its human form. To see how some of this works in the biblical story, we need to rejoin Abraham's family after Genesis closes with And the book of Exodus gets underway. So God's reaffirmation of Abraham's family. When Abraham's family finds themselves in slavery in Egypt, God rescues them in the Exodus and leads them to Mount Sinai. There he reaffirms their place in his mission and essentially says to them in Exodus 19.6, If you are to carry out your commission to be my people on behalf of the other nations, and the whole earth that belongs to me, then your job description is to be a holy nation engaged in priestly service. They were to be a publicly distinct, set-apart people who, like priests, were to represent their particular God to the nations and those nations to their particular God. Now, it wasn't that they were called to go into the nations and be evangelists who preached repentance and tried to convert the nations to worship of Yahweh. Rather, their faithful life together was to reflect his character in order to teach the nations the way of the Lord. Their community life was to be a showcase or a model for the way that God had created humans to live, making Israel his instrument for moving his creatures and his creation toward the justice and the shalom that is creation's intended destiny. God graciously gave his Torah or law to help Israel understand how this rather broad description was to take shape in their daily lives. The covenantal demands of Torah gave the way of the Lord the specificity it needed in their own particular social context and their geographical location. In effect, it was their employee manual that would direct them how to fulfill their job description as God's vehicle of his life-giving mission. And it was the primary means through which God would continue to mold them into that vehicle. It's not always easy. I certainly get that. It's not always easy to see how how many of Torah's instructions might shape Israel's daily life in a missional way. But a glance at a couple of the covenantal demands that we might readily associate with issues of justice will illustrate how they equip Israel for their participation in God's mission and help them reflect God's character or God's holiness in their life together. So some representative instructions. To illustrate the nature of some of these covenantal demands, 
we'll draw from Leviticus 19. I can see that the excitement is, is, is growing. We're going into Leviticus. Well, this chapter opens with these words. The Lord said to Moses, say to the whole community of the Israelites, you must be holy because I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am holy. It closes with these words. I am the Lord, your God. Now, it doesn't say the particular God, but I added that. The particular God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You must keep all my rules and all my regulations and do them. I am the Lord, Yahweh. These verses give God's reasoning for why Israel is to engage in keeping the rules and regulations in these chapters, in this chapter. Doing so will stamp their community's life with a particular pattern that continues their being made holy. They're being set apart from other nations to reflect the holy character of the particular God whose name is Yahweh. Their obedience will exhibit the way of the Lord in their concrete daily life and their specific social context. Even a casual glimpse at what's in Leviticus 19 shows us that holiness isn't something that's limited to some religious sphere. This is a job manual for everyday life. Gives instructions on things like respecting or taking care of your aging mother and father, the way you farm your land, the way you treat your workers, and the way you conduct your business with honesty. It talks about how you treat the handicapped, senior citizens, and immigrants. Let's look closely, a little more closely, at a couple of these. The first of which explicitly instructs Israel to mirror Yahweh's character and justice by acting toward others inside and outside their community in a way that God had already acted toward them. Let's look at verse 34. Any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as if they were one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. I myself am the Lord your God. The point here is that Israel was to treat immigrants in their own land differently than Egypt had treated them when they were immigrants there. They weren't to mimic the ways of life considered normal in the idolatrous empire from which God had delivered them where those in charge, the powerful elite Egyptians, took advantage of their weak position in society and enslaved them. Rather, their actions were to reflect the graceful way the true God had treated them, hearing their cries of injustice and doing something about it, even in something as messy as an immigration situation. Let those with ears to hear listen well. It was simply a part of their job description 
of being a holy people to act toward vulnerable outsiders in their society in ways that reflected how God had acted toward them with his saving justice. Actually, if we'd started earlier in Leviticus 19, we'd see that these commands get even more specific regarding how God's holy people are to treat vulnerable people. For example, note verses 9 and 10. When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of the field. And don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. Also, don't pick your vineyard clean or gather up all the grapes that have fallen there. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant. I myself am the Lord your God. Notice, this isn't some religious rule. It's about how you run your business, how you make your living. It's about doing what you can to make sure that the most vulnerable people in your society have access to at least enough food to survive. But notice the reason God gives for this command. And this holds true for the one we just looked at in verse 34. God doesn't say, leave these items for the poor and the immigrant because all humans have dignity or because all humans have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He says to do these things because I myself am the Lord or Yahweh, your God. This isn't God's way of saying Don't do this because I'm in charge and I I said so. Rather, it's God's way of reminding his people of his own particular identity and character. They don't serve some generic God like the American God of civil religion. They serve the Lord Yahweh. The particular God whose actions towards them have defined his character as one who desires abundant, flourishing life for all. And this particular God wants his people to pattern their life in such a way that vulnerable people like the poor and the immigrants can share in that abundant, flourishing life. When they do so... They reflect the holy character of their particular God and his commitment to justice and its resulting shalom. Through his people's concrete pattern of doing justice in this way, God's own holiness is on display. So then, Israel's obedience to Torah, their employee manual, through that, God would mold their life together into a display of what he means by justice and its resulting shalom. That is, well-ordered, flourishing life. But as things turned out, the forces of sin and death unleashed in the garden proved powerful enough that even Israel itself began to reflect the chaos, disorder, and injustice of a sin-stricken world as was very often the case in later centuries in the church and in ways that continue even now. Rather than confronting the surrounding nation's idolatrous way of life, Israel was instead absorbed into it, something that the prophets knew all too well. 
By the time Isaiah writes, God's people's life together has begun to look like the way of Sodom and Gomorrah rather than the way of the Lord. So much so that the prophet says to the people of Judah, hear the word of the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to our God's teaching, people of Gomorrah. Abraham's family had not only failed to attune their ears to the cries of injustice around them, their life together, like that of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, had itself become a channel for oppression and injustice as those with power were treating the most vulnerable among their own people with injustice. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel in particular knew that something had to change for Israel to begin to showcase God's justice in its lives as a people so that other nations could get a living picture of their God's character, of their God's holiness. They knew that something had to happen and something totally unexpected did. Yahweh's own holiness, his very essence, took up residence in a human Jew from Nazareth who was, at the same time, God's divine son. And not surprisingly, since we've seen that God's justice in its saving mode is a display of God's holiness, Jesus also became the living picture of God's saving justice. That means that Jesus was the true embodiment of what Israel was to have been and therefore the embodiment of what it means to be truly human. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul specifically says that Christ has become both saving justice and holiness for us from God and then adds that he has also become liberating redemption. Now let me unpack this statement briefly in a couple of ways. First, while it may not be Paul's primary point here, this way of stating things tightly summarizes Jesus's life pattern in the Gospels. There, Jesus is called the Holy One of God and opposes a nexus of debilitating forces like Satan and the demonic, um, disorders, Uh, physical disorders and sickness, um, impurity, death-dealing political power, social forces that make adequate food hard to come by for many, and finally, human sin itself. Taken together, these are chaotic forces opposing God's reign. By oppressing, enslaving contaminating and generally distorting God's creatures and his creation, inhibiting it from reaching its intended destiny. When Jesus crosses social, religious, and even political boundaries to bring liberating redemption to people oppressed by these forces, he restores shalom to their lives. This pattern of redemptive activity that opposes chaotic forces that disorder human life exemplifies God's saving justice and therefore displays God's own character, God's holiness. So for Paul to say that Jesus has become saving justice, holiness, and liberating redemption for us from God rings true to the way that Jesus 
lived. But there's also another way of hearing this statement that is probably closer to what Paul may intend. In this passage, Paul's focus is on Christ as crucified, indicating that there's something about what happens in the scandalous injustice of the cross and in Jesus' subsequent resurrection that affects God's saving justice and liberating redemption and thereby reveals God's holiness. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, as Paul says elsewhere. In Jesus, God himself suffered the worst injustice that humans, under the influence of the chaotic force of sin, can dole out. A violent, shameful death nailed naked and publicly exposed on a cross. Like God's action at Sodom and Gomorrah, this too was an act of saving justice. Only now, God doesn't destroy the channels of the forces of sin and injustice to bring liberating redemption. Rather, in the person of Jesus, he reveals just how far his extreme, amazing love and mercy goes by absorbing that injustice and violence into himself in order to begin the process of purging the world of it. Then through Jesus' resurrection, God begins the new creation that will one day culminate in abundant, rightly ordered life and shalom for all. God's way of doing justice in Jesus then is also God's way of demonstrating his extreme, amazing love by showing us the lengths to which he will go to bring liberating redemption to his good creation and bring it to its intended destiny. This reveals God's character or God's holiness to us like nothing else. So then, Jesus himself, in the entirety of his life, death, and resurrection, literally fleshes out Isaiah's claim that God's justice in its saving mode of establishing or restoring shalom is a concrete display of holiness, a display of the very essence of God's own character. What it means to be both truly human and truly holy now bears the stamp of the particular human being, Israel's messianic representative. Jesus, the Nazarene, through whom God realized his dream of carrying out his life-giving mission through humanity. Becoming a beneficiary of this loving mission of God is at once to become a participant in that mission as a part of a corporate body we call a church. It's like being rescued from a POW camp, being nursed back to health, and then sent on as a part of the forces through which the next camp will be delivered or liberated. This means that the local church, now as the very body of Christ in its community, is the primary instrument of God's continuing mission. As we're enabled by the Christ-shaped Holy Spirit to participate in a pattern of activity analogous to that of Jesus, the church both corporately and individually, becomes God's channel for continuing his justice-restoring, reconciling, 
redeeming life-giving mission. To paraphrase Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God has carried out his reconciling mission in Christ so that in him we might become the saving justice of God. Or to use Paul's words in Romans 6.13, we're no longer to present ourselves to the commanding general named sin as weapons of injustice, but to present ourselves to God as weapons of his saving justice. The church is truly itself and truly holy when it responds to the Spirit's enabling by participating in God's mission as an instrument of God's saving justice through which God continues his work to bring creation to its intended destiny of flourishing with abundant life for all. That is shalom. But how does all this look in local churches? How does it look when churches hear stories like those of Patricia's and Jennifer's? As a weapon of God's saving justice through which God is displaying his own holy character, how might a local church begin to participate in God's mission as an instrument of his saving justice when payday loan companies rob its community of the shalom that God desires for that community? Well, to begin with, we might explore whether people within our own congregations are victims of such predatory loan practices, finding ways to allow them to speak openly honestly and without shame about these debt traps. Inviting people like Patricia and Jennifer to tell their stories to us, their Christian brothers and sisters, would inform many of us in the church about the real human effects of injustice just around the corner, effects we tend to ignore or about which we're simply unaware. Hearing these kinds of visceral stories face-to-face has a way of moving us to behave differently and respond concretely. One creative response might look like that of the University Heights Baptist Church of Springfield, Missouri. After becoming aware of the issue, church members educated themselves about it, not only by reading books and watching videos, but also attending a poverty simulation and riding on the city's buses. There's little question that these sorts of concrete physical practices and social interactions had a transformative impact on their imaginations, particularly regarding the way they thought about the working poor. They raised $6,000 with the goal of raising another $14,000 and set up an account called University Hope at a local credit union. People like Jennifer can borrow small loans from the credit union with no credit check because the money in the University Hope account functions as collateral for such loans. In fact, Jennifer did borrow $573 from the program in order to finally pay off an original payday loan of $500 after spending a couple of thousand dollars over two years desperately trying to pay off the loan. No doubt there are other ways of responding to this issue, and this is just one issue of justice among many others. But as weapons of God's saving justice through which God is displaying his own holy character, Local churches throughout the U.S. are responding to the Spirit's enabling by intentionally and creatively finding concrete ways to oppose and attempt to rectify other shalom-robbing conditions, like the injustice experienced by immigrants in our broader society, many of whom are in our churches. When their family is broken apart with an undocumented mother of three young children, deported with little hope of seeing her kids again for at least a decade. Like pornographic addictions that enslave its viewers, including many Christians, 
destroying their families and dehumanizing them and also those who offer their bodies in the industry for the consumption of others. Like the continuing lack of basic health care available for many of the working poor and their young children, including many brothers and sisters in Christ, even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act like the pernicious effects of having large numbers of liquor stores, tobacco outlets, and fast food restaurants in lower-income neighborhoods in which many of our brothers and sisters live, with no grocery stores having fresh produce in sight, like the racism on display in a criminal justice system that is systemically even if unintentionally biased against African-American males, including many Christian teenagers who have heard the talk from their anxious mom or dad about what to do whenever a police officer encounters them. Like the enslavement of the sex trade that exists in almost every nook and cranny of North America. By participating in God's mission as an instrument of his saving justice in these and many other ways, the Spirit continues shaping the church into the holy people of God, making us into a display of his holiness in our local communities. This is part and parcel of what it means for persons and whole communities to be the sanctified people of God who are continuing to be made holy. As we participate in God's mission as weapons of God's saving justice, may our individual lives and our life together as the body of Christ become a witness to and a glimpse of creation's intended destiny when it becomes God's cosmic sanctuary, totally permeated with his life-giving holiness, issuing in shalom and justice for all. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Uh, Folks, let's stand together, please. Uh, A wonderful way to live out God's vision for a flourishing life. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Challenging to us as an EDC community. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for the message that we've heard these uh, past few days. We thank you for revealing to us your great vision for the world, the cosmos, all of creation. And we want to live into that life-flourishing vision that you have for us. And we see from Andy's uh, message that you desire that we participate in that. So So, Father, at this point, at the end of this service today, we give you our lives, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, Lord, we are yours as instruments of your grace and mercy. Use us to bring justice and shalom into this world. We want to be instruments usable by the Spirit of God. So bless this community, I pray. Lord, help us to continue to be uncomfortable until we see the injustices around us and to live a life to embody your love and your grace and mercy. We give you thanks for that opportunity. We ask your blessing upon these good folks as they go. Use us again. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.